All Lieutenant Britton Davis did that morning was get out of bed. But history teaches us that sometimes that's all it takes. He had no reason to suspect that that particular morning, May 15, 1885, would be any different than any other morning from the last few weeks. In fact, things have been going great since returning to Turkey Creek alongside his Chiricahua Apache charges that spring. For the past several days, his new superior officer had come to the area to hand out gifts, inspect the Apache farms, and just generally make sure nothing was amiss. And it didn't seem like there were any problems. Heck, just three days ago, the Apache had even thrown a party to celebrate the visit, where even the surly Geronimo, who Davis didn't entirely trust, had joined in on speeches celebrating the blessings of peace that the Apache and the white men were now enjoying. So, as the sun rose that particular morning, Davis probably thought that it was just going to be another day on the job. The first clue that that might not be the case was when he heard some sort of commotion happening outside his tent. When he went outside to see what the trouble was, he found himself confronted by all the leading Chiricahua men, who were either hungover or still deeply intoxicated. Despite the inspections of the past week, Davis, his superiors, and his scouts had failed to sense the undercurrent of rebellion that was sweeping through the camp. He didn't know that just the day beforehand, most of his charges had decided that they were going to challenge him and his authority. And he definitely didn't know that he was even then standing right on the edge of the next great chapter in the long, sad saga of the Apache Wars. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 102, His Word Was Worthless. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we dealt with the Chiricahua as they tried to settle down at Turkey Creek, but kept running afoul of their white overseers because they really wanted to brew the banned corn liquor known as Tiswin. Moonshining was happening all around, despite the increasingly brutal efforts to suppress it. And we are going to tug on that particular thread and watch it unspool the entire reservation tapestry in just a moment. But first, I want to concentrate on the other bit of major news that occurred last episode. After two long, torturous years of trying to be the big cheese on the reservation, without having to do all that bothersome work, Indian agent Philip P. Wilcox resigned in August 1884, following his latest failed confrontation with Captain Emmett Crawford. His replacement was another Colorado resident named Charles D. Ford, who had been appointed because he happened to have the right friends, namely two important Colorado senators. So, like Wilcox, his appointment was about politics and patronage, and he had no prior experience with Amerindians or the Apache in particular. However, unlike Wilcox, Ford appeared to be honest, eager, optimistic, and resourceful, and determined to, you know, actually do his job. However, he suddenly hit what had to be the most unexpected of brick walls, Crawford. 
For several episodes now, the narrative has been that Crawford had been the honest, hardworking public servant, but was constantly stymied by the lackadaisical and obstructionist Indian agent. But now, that narrative is going to reverse itself, and it's Indian agent Ford who's going to find himself butting heads with the suddenly obstructionist Captain Crawford. Now, that might be a little surprising given Crawford's glowing reviews from everyone he comes in contact with, but the issue seems to be that he never gave Ford the benefit of the doubt. He had dealt with these corrupt, politically appointed officials for so long that he would not even bother checking first to see if Ford might be a whole different sort of person. For the first several weeks the new Indian agent was at San Carlos, Crawford even refused to go up and greet him. And when they had their first real dust-up, it was because Crawford was being overly stubborn and prideful. Now, that dust-up happened over an annuity of supplies that Ford had received for the Apache. On December 5, 1884, he distributed these supplies to the other bands living close to the San Carlos Agency without an issue, and set aside a portion for the White Mountain and Chiricahua bands as well. But then he learned that Crawford had ordered Davis and Captain Charles Gatewood, the commanding officer at Fort Apache, to come down to San Carlos and retrieve these annuities. So Ford wrote to Crawford and said basically, you know, I hate to be a stickler about these things, but technically, and I know it's a dumb rule, but my bosses insist, the Bureau of Indian Affairs' policy was that the Indian agent or one of his employees oversees the distribution of this annuity. Crawford balked at this, thinking that Ford shouldn't need any interaction with the Chiricahua because the War Department was overseeing them, though the supplies were coming from the Interior Department and the Indian agent had the responsibility to see that they were handed out correctly. And Ford even tried to compromise, offering to go with Davis and Gatewood, let them hand out the supplies while he just watched and didn't cause any trouble at all. But Crawford, as I said, had suddenly become obstinate, and he sent Davis and Gatewood back to the White Mountains without any of the supplies, something that caused no small amount of murmuring among the Chiricahua who were waiting for, you know, things like blankets. There would be some other issues as well, such as in January 1885 when Ford stood up to Crawford over the allocation of farming plots along the San Carlos River. The difference of opinion, and Crawford is again in the wrong here, overextending his authority, which should only have been over police matters, would result in a formal complaint from Ford to his superiors. By now, the upper-ups in Washington were well used to the flood of complaints coming in from the agent at San Carlos. But this time, they all agreed that Crawford was in the wrong, and then they sent word to General Crook through his superiors to admonish his wayward captain. And Crook even knew that Crawford was in the wrong, but he was very loath to admit it because Crawford was such a good officer, so he went another route entirely. He threatened to resign. Now, Crook was notoriously thin-skinned when it came to people questioning his authority or decisions, and this is a threat that he had made several, several times. Of course, he may have gone to that well so many times because it always worked. Crook's superiors saw him as nigh indispensable, the only man who could exert any influence over the warlike Apache. In fact, in all of 1884, there had been not a single Apache raid in Arizona. The first time that could be said since certainly 1874 and maybe as far back as 1830. 
that's a streak that no one wanted to see broken. At the same time, though, Crook could see that Crawford was simply burnt out. He was tired of overseeing the Apache. He was tired from his fights with Wilcox. He was just tired. In late February 1885, Crawford decided that maybe it was his time to go. His 3rd Cavalry Regiment had been sent to Texas, and he asked permission to go with them. He didn't like it, but Crook realized the transfer was in everyone's best interest. On February 27th, he issued General Order 7, announcing that Crawford was leaving, with his profound thanks, and that he was being replaced by Captain Francis Pierce, a Civil War veteran who had lost the sight in one eye during combat and was known to make common-sense decisions. Instantly, all the tension that had prevailed at San Carlos melted away as Pierce and Ford found that they could work together very well. Now, don't feel too sorry for Crawford. At least, not yet. It turns out that he won't be gone for that long. But for now, we'll let him rest. One of the first things to do with this new amicable partnership between the Indian agent and the military was actually get the annuity supplies, still locked up at San Carlos, to the Chiricahua and White Mountain Bands, who had returned to Turkey Creek in the spring of 1885. Ford would accompany Pearson Davis, the same compromise he originally proposed to Crawford, and he would not try to interact with the Apache. And this trip would also be good for Ford and Pearson in particular, as it would be the first time that they would both get to see the Chiricahua in person. As they spent time with the Apache and looked over their farms, it quickly became apparent that, well, the Chiricahua weren't really farmers. Like I mentioned last episode, the Chiricahua had more than enough rations, and Ford learned that they even actually sold or gambled away some of this excess to the White Mountain Apache. He also wasn't that impressed with the farming that he did see, which consisted of mainly corn and melons with some barley along the side. The White Mountain Bands had a green thumb compared to the Chiricahua, and though the leaders were proud of the results, Pierce wrote that their fields were not, quote, well-cultivated or well-fenced, and it's easy to distinguish them from the fields of the White Mountain Indians when they are planted side by side, end quote. In Pierce's view, the main problem was that the Chiricahua loved drinking and gambling too much. In fact, it was pretty obvious that they had traded many of the farming tools given them to the White Mountain Apache to use. Ford reported that it was mostly the women tending to the crops they did have, leaving the men free to indulge in the vice of their choosing. There's a lot of cultural baggage about gender roles that goes into that last bit, so please don't think that I'm passing judgment, though most of the Americans viewing this dynamic did. All of this is seen at the small plot of one warrior-turned-farmer in particular, Geronimo. In the spring of 1885, the widely leader invited Lieutenant Davis to come down and see his farm along the White River, proudly displaying a small blister on the palm of his hand that came from all his hard work. When Davis made it out to the farm the next day, he found Geronimo, quote, sitting on a rail in the shade of a tree with one of his wives fanning him. The other two were hoeing a quarter-acre patch of partially cleared ground, in which a few sickly-looking sprouts of corn were struggling for life, end quote. Davis was clearly unimpressed, but then again, he never really liked Geronimo. 
The man seems to have been something of an acquired taste, as he vacillated between respected elder of his people and someone that no one really liked. And this carried through to the Americans who met him during this time too. Despite praising his farming in the summer of 1884, General Crook described Geronimo as vindictive, cruel, and crafty. Meanwhile, Lieutenant James Parker, who was stationed at Fort Apache, said that during his time there, they saw Geronimo quite frequently and described him as friendly and even good-natured. Parker recalled a humorous incident where he and Geronimo were out hunting with the post-surgeon, who had helped cure Geronimo of a venereal disease over the winter and spring of 1885. The post-surgeon during this trip decided that he wanted to smoke a cigarette, and in a comedic scene ripped straight out of a movie, and with almost unfathomable naivete, the doctor picked up two sticks and handed them to Geronimo to produce a light for his smoke. Parker says that when Geronimo finally understood what the surgeon wanted, he, quote, fell into paroxysms of laughter at the thought that a white man could hope to produce fire with two damp twigs, end quote. Which I think is something well-deserved. But one person that Geronimo definitely did not win over was Davis, who had a strong dislike for him. The lieutenant judged him to be a, quote, thirdly vicious, intractable, and treacherous man. His only redeeming qualities were courage and determination. His word, no matter how earnestly pledged, was worthless, end quote. And, in a very prescient statement, he says Geronimo's past was, quote, a series of broken pledges and incitements to outbreaks, end quote. But all of that didn't look like that big of a problem at the beginning of May 1885. In fact, on May 12th, the day before Ford and Pierce returned down to San Carlos along the Gila, the Chiricahua threw them a huge party-slash-feast. During these festivities, Nietzsche, wearing some American clothing that everyone agreed made him look very dapper, got on top of a wagon and gave a speech about the blessings of peace that they all now enjoyed. A speech that Geronimo himself heartedly endorsed. As he wrote about his trip on that day, Pierce would pen some very ironic words, saying that the Chiricahua were, quote, cheerful and contented. All indicators are that they will remain quiet, end quote. Anyone out there want to take bets on how long that will remain true? Well, if your thought is three days, then you would be right. So what went wrong? One of the simplest answers is that Geronimo was just paranoid. He always thought people were conspiring against him, whispering negative gossip about him to everyone. In this paranoia, he would blame a lot of what is about to happen on Chato, his one-time comrade who had now cozied up to the White Eyes, or Mickey Free, that darn kid who had started this whole conflict, and Lieutenant Davis himself, who very obviously didn't like him. And fuel was thrown onto the pyre of paranoia in May 1885, when Davis suddenly showed up at Turkey Creek with this new Indian agent and... Wait, who's this? Captain Crawford is gone? With the exception of Geronimo, everyone liked and respected Crawford, who they called Tall Captain. If he was now gone, did that mean they were going to be transferred again to the Indian Bureau that had done such a poor job looking after them? Geronimo, in particular, was certain that Crook would never let such a trusted and effective subordinate go, so he started jumping to conclusions, thinking that Crook himself had left 
taking Crawford with him? And if Crook, the only commander of the White Eyes that seemed to understand and advocate for the Apache, was now gone, did that mean all his promises he made in 1883 when he rounded them up in Mexico would just be dropped? Or was this the first move to round them all up and send them to Alcatraz like they had Kaitene? Nothing that Davis or the others said to assure Geronimo that Crook was still in charge seemed to convince him. Then there was the other great plague of Turkey Creek that made sure everything went downhill very fast. That's right, once again we're talking about Tiswin. I know I keep harping on this, but really Tiswin will be the main problem here, with Geronimo's paranoia just there to make sure everything is blown out of proportion. On May 14, 1885, just two days after Pierce and Ford departed, all the leaders and prominent individuals from the various Chiricahua bands decided that they were going to openly defy the ban on Tiswin. Why they chose to do it at that particular time isn't entirely clear, but it could be with Crawford gone that this was a perfect test of the new Captain Pierce and exactly how much they could get away with. It might have also been in defiance of some recent arrests Davis had made for members of several bands who were caught violating the Tiswin Edict. However, they came to the decision that they simply had to have a Tiswin drunk, and let's be honest, they needed very little convincing in that regard. On the day in question, every Chiricahua leader, aside from Chato, got together to drink. And they all gathered at the camp of Geronimo and Mangus, the son of Mangus Coloradas. Some 80 to 90 of the 120 Chiricahua men participated in this event, including Geronimo, Mangus, Chihuahua, Naiche, Loco, Bonito, and even old Nana too. What made it even more special is that the Tisun was made by Mangus's wife, Wera, who I mentioned last episode as a gifted Tisun brewer. It's possible that because it was a batch of Wera's own make, that this Tiswin drunk attracted so many people. And it's while they were sitting around, drinking up the corn alcohol, laughing, and no doubt having a great time, that the leaders of the group had a great idea. They were all upset over the forced policy that they couldn't drink this whenever they wanted, or beat their wives whenever they wanted, and why should they listen to the white eyes in the first place, and you know what? We should really go give that Davis guy a piece of our minds. I mean, what's he gonna do? There's no way he could arrest all of us, right? So, they resolved to do just that. In the morning, they would all go to the tent of the stout captain and give him a real tongue lashing. Fully satisfied that they had just come up with a brilliant plan, they then went and had another round. They had no idea what they were about to start and how quickly things would spire out of control. And that brings us to where we started today's episode. It was a bright sunny morning on May 15, 1885, when Lieutenant Davis heard a disturbance outside of his tent. Unaware that anything was amiss, somehow he and his scouts were totally in the dark about this massive Tiswin drunk that had just happened, he stepped outside to see what could possibly be wrong. He was greeted by the sight of all these prominent Chiricahua leaders armed with knives and even a few pistols. Geronimo, Mangus, Naiche, and Chihuahua were all so drunk from the previous night that they could barely stand, 
while Loco, Benito, and Nana were in better shape, but still seriously hung over. Behind them was a group of some two dozen or so other leading Chiricahua. Here also was Chato and the scouts, clustered in groups of four and five, just watching everything. In what I assume is a decidedly slurred fashion, these leaders told Davis, through interpreter Mickey Free, that they needed to talk. Startled, but not feeling really threatened yet, Davis invited the ringleaders into his tent. Once there, Loco began talking, having been elected to be a spokesman of sorts because he had a good rapport with Davis. He started slowly and haltingly trying to lay out why the Chiricahua should be able to do as they pleased. But he apparently wasn't getting to the point fast enough for the angry belligerent Chihuahua who interrupted by saying, quote, What I have to say can be said in a few words. Then Loco can take the rest of the day to talk if he wishes to do so. End quote. And Chihuahua then told Davis point blank that the Apache could do whatever they wanted, and the U.S. government had no right to meddle in any of their affairs. After all, the American soldiers drank whiskey and beer, and that was okay. The Chiricahua had kept their promises to Crook. They hadn't attacked anybody. And for the record, he said, they only beat their wives if they deserved it. Yeah, I try not to be a cultural judge, but with statements like that, it's kind of hard sometimes. After Chihuahua's outburst, Davis tried to reason with the group, explaining exactly why Crook had banned the drink. It caused fighting and violence, sometimes death, he argued, bringing up a recent incident where a man had stabbed his wife at a Tiswin party, an incident that the Apache had tried to cover up and didn't realize Davis knew anything about. And when Davis tried to steer the subject to how the Apaches should treat their women, it was too much for old Nana. He abruptly stood up and told Mickey Free to inform Davis, quote, He can't advise me how to treat my woman. He is only a boy. I killed men before he was born. End quote. And then he stormed out. At this point, Chihuahua resumed his polemic against Davis and the Tiswin ban, finally issuing a bold challenge, saying, quote, We all drank Tiswin last night. All of us in the tent and those outside except the scouts and many more. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to put us all in jail? You have no jail big enough, even if you could put us all in jail. End quote. It was a valid point, and Davis knew it. Cowed by the sudden defiance that seemed to come out of left field, the lieutenant must have run several options through his mind about how to respond. Finally, he told them that this was a very serious issue and that he had to consult Crook about how to proceed. He would telegram Natan Lupin at once and would receive his instructions in a few days. Was that acceptable to all of them? Not particularly happy and still very intoxicated or hungover, the Apache did agree to this and then left the tent. Quick as lightning, Davis ran to send a telegram down to his commander, Pierce at San Carlos, to forward to Crook. But here's the thing. He would have done much better saying to heck with the chain of command, and sending it directly to Crook. As I mentioned, Pierce was still new at his gig. It had been less than two months since he took over for Crawford, and he'd just met the Chiricahua for the first time a week ago. And now Davis is telegraphing him about this giant Tiswin drunk and mass defiance and how he needs to know how to respond. It was a little too much for a guy who still didn't understand the lay of the land. 
Pierce would later admit to Crook that he totally misread the situation when Davis's telegram arrived on the morning of May 15th. He had just had a happy little meal with the Cherokee two days ago where they had pledged peace and friendship. And the Indians getting drunk couldn't possibly lead to something big like a breakout, right? That would just be silly. Still, Davis seemed really urgent about this, so Pierce decided to get a second opinion. He sought out Chief of Scouts Al Sieber for his take on the situation. Except Sieber had been out all night gambling and drinking with his men and was still sound asleep in bed when the telegram was brought to him. When he was lucid and sober, Sieber was a man of profound judgment and understanding, but that morning he wasn't particularly lucid or sober. Without even bothering to do more than just give the telegram a passing glance, he dismissed it. He told Pierce, quote, It's nothing more than a tiss when drunk. Don't pay any attention to it. Davis will handle it. End quote. I can only assume that he rolled over at that point and went back to sleep. With this advice backing up his inexperienced conclusion, Pierce shrugged his shoulders and put the telegram in a drawer, not bothering to pass it along to Crook or even bothering to inform Davis of his decision. Crook would always say that had he gotten that telegram, he was sure he could have stopped what's about to happen. So you ask, what happened? Well, after this confrontation with Davis, the Chiricahua, still in very foul moods, split off to wait for whatever Crook would say to their demands. Then, potentially, the worst thing that could have happened, happened. Geronimo and Mungus sobered up. Once their Tiswin haze lifted, they sort of blinked and looked at each other and said, Holy cow, what did we just do? Remember that Geronimo is downright paranoid and saw enemies all around him, and the memories of his imprisonment by Clum and others were always informing all of his decisions. Everyone was against him. Chato, Mickey Free, Davis, maybe even Crook himself. And that meant his options must be limited, right? And Mungus was the son of Mungus Colderatus, and we all remember what had happened to him when he fell into the hands of the White Eyes. P.S. If you don't remember what happened to him, go back and listen to episode 42. And, oh my goodness, are we seriously 60 episodes past that, but I have only moved 20 years on the timeline? Anyway... Both Geronimo and Mangus were also hearing quite a lot from Wera, Mangus's wife and Tiswin brewer extraordinaire, who quite frankly disliked Americans and was pretty contemptuous of Davis. Since her husband and all his buddies had just admitted they were out on a bender, she was sure that she would be arrested for brewing Tiswin and thrown into jail. She even endorsed a rumor going around that Davis was going to come any day now to get her, and would definitely arrest Geronimo and Mangus too if he didn't kill them first. So she started pressuring all the leading men of the Apache to defy the hated White Eyes and flee to Sonora like they had before. According to one version, she chided with the Chiricahua chiefs, questioning their manhood and saying, quote, If you are warriors, you will take to the warpath, and then the gray fox, that is crook, must catch you before you are punished. End quote. With all this swirling about, it's not hard to imagine what Geronimo chose to do. As historian Edwin R. Sweeney says, when threatened, Geronimo always consulted his guardian spirit, which inevitably told him to run. But 
now we run into our next problem, and another gaping black spot on Geronimo's reputation. By the afternoon of May 16, 1885, the day after the confrontation with Davis, he and Mongus were all set to book it, but they only had attracted 15 to 20 men to their cause. They needed more men for an effective outbreak, just in case the army caught up with them, and that meant they needed to persuade Naiche and Chihuahua to come to their side and bring all their followers with them. But that's a hard sell. Chihuahua didn't want to wind up at Alcatraz like Kaitane, and Naiche's father, Cochise the Great and Terrible, had literally said on his deathbed that Naiche should live at peace with the Americans as much as possible. Both may have liked their Tiswin too, but they weren't ready to bolt the reservation over it. So Geronimo, deciding that the ends really do justify the means, settled for a scheme. The next day, May 17th, he talked to two relatives of his who were members of the Apache Scouts and gave them an important mission. They were to kill Davis and Chato. But here's the kicker. He then turned around and told Chihuahua and Naiche that he had given this order. Except he bent the truth severely and said that by now they had certainly already done it. And that meant mass retaliation and arrests were coming around the corner any second now. With that bit of misinformation, the two men now felt backed into a wall. They thought that they would be judged guilty by association by the Americans, so the only logical move they could make was fleeing with Geronimo and Mungus. So, just like that, the stage was now set for the last great outbreak of the Chiricahua, and Geronimo's third and final time going off the reservation. And with that cliffhanger, I'm going to leave things here for the next two weeks. As I mentioned last week, I'm taking off next week and the week after for everything that's happening for the 4th of July. But come back and join me on July 10th, as Geronimo and his people fracture and flee down to Mexico, leaving Crook to once again figure out how to round up all the Apache. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.